Welcome to the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast, your favorite politics and philosophy podcast because it is your only politics and philosophy podcast. I'm Toby Napolitano, and with me this week, as always, the mean mainer, Michael Hughes. (laughs) (laughs) What's happening? (laughs) And I wasn't asking as in like, what's happening, Toby? I was asking that as in like, what the hell's happening? (laughs) <laughs> is that is that not a name you go by the mean manor i mean it seems right i'm mean grumpy truthfully I, yeah honestly, truthfully i was deciding between the mean manor and the neighborhood grump which i i feel like all of our listeners would be like yeah that seems about right i go with the misanthropic manor but yeah nah. Nah, mean manor is better it sounds like a boxing nickname um right. but also making her triumphant return uh the person who is simultaneously our nature correspondent and our New Zealand correspondent, Hannah Gunn. <laughs> Christ. I was waiting to see what the nickname would be. I'm kind of <laughs> glad it wasn't alliterative. Um, but on the other hand, having a little set of alliterative silly names is also kind of appealing in its own right. So Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's what makes this podcast good. It really <laughs> relies heavily on those introductions. Anyways, uh, good to be back. It's been a little while. Apologies, folks. We've been super busy. Um, unsurprisingly, you're used to this kind of behavior by now, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, so we thought, kind of amazingly, but kind of not, for the first time in this podcast to like kind of talk about something related to climate change. Obviously, there's you know been the recent climate change conference. I didn't follow that very closely, but I think the takeaway is what one always expects which is like oh that was kind of nice but not nearly good enough do you guys have have more details on that <laughs> is that is that basically right yeah. that is true <laughs> well so i think michael also didn't pay much attention to cop 26 it was his taking part and i i did and i didn't um yeah i mean one of the things that was uh perhaps worse <laughs> is that I read a lot of commentary about how the promises that were made this time around were even weaker than they normally are, Um, as in, like, the strength of the obligation generated by the things that the people said that they were going to do was weaker than normal. And also, just like, (laughs) we think it would be nice if... (laughs) Well, so that's the thing, right? they're, They're not binding. Um, yeah. And there aren't really many consequences. So there was more coverage of that fact this time, which maybe, you know, has just been true all along and we just haven't attended to that. But yeah, also the content is wildly insufficient. Things like countries promising we'll, we'll start to deal with this by 2050, uh, which <laughs> basically locks in two and a half degrees of warming. <laughs> Celsius. Celsius. Yeah. Um, Yes, because all measurements when we talk about climate change differences are always actually done in Celsius. Wait, is welcome is there to some the rest chance, of the world, America. Is there some, <laughs> hang on, is there some chance that like most Americans are like ah two degrees, two degrees Fahrenheit? That's like nothing. No, no, and they don't re- they don't is realize it, it's you, actually. Uh, hold on, do you mean is there some? What the hell do you mean? Is there some okay. chance? What, is it what certain? I mean, more like no, 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 no. <laughs> what proportion of the uh, apathy is caused by that stupid little? conversion oh. fact Probably i honestly not that feel much, like but... no i reckon i could look this up and find a, an actual figure for you i'd be surprised <laughs> if there aren't numbers on this um, so 
So I would expect, though, that you're going to get cynicism either way, right? So it's either going to be like apathy, right? Yeah. Or it's going to be like stronger skepticism, right? So if you plug in the Fahrenheit numbers, people are going to be like, there's no way. There's no way the Earth's going to warm up that much. Um. Yeah, so so I, I said it's kind of surprising that we haven't talked about this because obviously it's a major issue. Uh, you know, some might argue the major issue of our time. Um, uh, that's that's kind of there's so many major issues of our time, but it's certainly certainly up there. Um, but the reason why we haven't really talked about it is because it's like, what 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 do you want us to say? Yeah, it's, people, it's, you, it's bad. You, you <laughs> should you should trust scientists who have studied this stuff and have the best models for this stuff uh and we should um certainly do something about it if the scientists say that doom is ahead no see i have a way more cynical take um okay. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> <Than> that? <laughs> no yeah no look the reason that the badlands politics and philosophy podcast hasn't talked about climate change is because it's typically talking about what the politicians are talking about and they don't talk about climate change so, you know, it's taken <laughs> us to attend to the to some other existing political conversation about climate change to talk about climate change. Yeah, I, I, I think truthfully, <laughs> it's because like, it's we, we had to find a way to make it a philosophical interest, which is the challenge, right. which is what we'll do today. However, before we start doing that, Michael, I feel like you have to you have to relate the what is it? Uh, newsroom, the newsroom oh, clip oh. that well, you that- always go to. Right. Well, that was the thing that immediately came to mind when Hannah was talking about the like the 2050 stuff. So there's right. the, the episode of the newsroom where the actor who plays Toby in the office is um, like the head. Of, he was like a lead scientist for the EPA in the ep- this episode of the newsroom where he steps down and it's really controversial. So he goes on the show and they're like they're talking about benchmarks and goals and stuff. And they're like, well, what if we did this? And he's like, yeah, that would have been great. And they're like, well, what if we, you know, what if we cut emissions by 80%? He's like, yeah, that would have, that would have been great, but it doesn't matter now because we're locked in. So those all would be great. Yeah. And so then afterwards they're, they're like, I remember, remind me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, yeah, they're like, so, so, you know, what do we do? Isn't he sort of just like, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's exactly. And that's, that's exactly where we would be. And at, you know, uh, if we don't do anything until 2050, then it's just going to be like, yeah, that'd be, it would have been great, but there's literally nothing to do. And they're like, can you give us some optimism? He's like, no, <laughs> you, you want me to like, I can, I can tell you falsehoods, scientific falsehoods, but no, the, Reality is reality. Yeah, that is, that is the perfect actor for that, by the way. Like his his deadpan is just—it's <laughs> right. very just, good, and he's kind of Eeyore-y, so it's yeah, yeah. So it actually—I mean, we we did kind of talk about climate change once. If one goes into the deep archives, <laughs> November twenty eighteen. When we talked mm. about what future generations will that's, condemn us for—that's that's not uh. a time that exists anymore. That's too far back. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, no, no. So, so uh, okay. What what we wanted to do in this episode is actually to discuss uh, Aldo Leopold's land ethic, which is the idea that basically ecosystems have intrinsic value, and, and we'll get there. I don't necessarily want to jump too far ahead to that now, um, but it's relative to our standard morality, a quite a radical idea, right? It would include so he says things like the soils have moral value 
the rocks, the plants, the sky, the water, right? Uh, and, and again, we'll talk about that. But the reason that's interesting, I think, um, you know, again, it's not an argument that's typically made, at least in kind of mainstream venues. But it would be worth kind of discussing why the typical arguments are different. Most of the arguments that are given are instrumental arguments, right? They don't say, uh, you know, climate change or destroying the environment is bad because the environment matters, period, in and of itself. Rather, it's climate change is terrible because of uh, weather catastrophes that are going to be more likely, massive human displacement, you know, increased droughts and famine. We should worry about the lives of our children, right? Ultimately, it's about human value and how human life will be made worse off. And these arguments, to be clear, are pretty persuasive. Like, like they, they are correct. And they should be enough, you would think, uh, to motivate people and sort of humanity at large. But apparently not. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we were thinking it might be interesting to explore this other approach. But let me just kind of just pause there and, and, and let you guys jump in. I was going to say I can throw in two facts with numbers. If that facts with numbers are good because I have like none of those for this episode. So if you have facts and or numbers, <laughs> I have neither. Got, so go ahead. I've got well. So I'll give I'll give two two facts from my list of six, and these are um, sort of instrumental arguments in support of the idea that uh, human meat consumption, especially factory farm meat consumption, is bad. But they apply to this broader discussion. So the first one is just a climate change statistic. Uh, the global livestock industry produces more greenhouse gases than the exhaust from every form of transport on the planet combined. The world's three biggest meat companies emitted more greenhouse gases in 2016 than the entire nation of France. The second, land use. Almost 80% of all of the planet's agricultural land is being used to graze animals or grow their feed rather than to grow plants for our consumption or other uses, I'll just add in my own comment there, um, up to 80% of deforestation is estimated to be the result of agricultural expansion. So those are two stats from um, this ch- uh, this recent book came out last year by Jenny Kleeman called Sex, Robots, and Vegan Meat. Uh, it's about technological advances at you know for life, death, and uh, procreation. And so, yeah, she's just sort of talking about, even if you don't care about animals at all, and so you're not motivated to eat fake or cultured meat for animal rights reasons. Just look at some of the facts about climate change, land use, the amount of water that it takes to produce this kind of food, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the context of those stats. But, you know, that's that's. Yeah, <laughs> not even talking about the intrinsic value of anything purely instrumentally. Right. And those reasons typically just don't cause, <laughs> uh, I guess, what we would say might be the appropriate reaction. Um yeah. <laughs> so, okay, good. That So that, I think, leads to the question that I was going to interject with, which is, or, or is like a general question, I think, for the framing of the episode that we should have on the table. Um, so we're going to talk about land ethics and the idea that, that people ought to ascribe an intrinsic value to ecosystems, land, nature, things like that. Um. Hannah just gave a whole bunch of reasons, sort of evidential reasons about why it is that meat consumption on uh, factory farming heavily contribute to climate change. One of the thing, and, and Toby, you originally sort of set this up as 
these are not motivating reasons for people. And it's sort of surprising. And so we're going to consider land ethics, this more like radical land ethics alternative as a different kind of motivating reason. Before we get there, I guess one question I have, and I wonder if there we have any uh, evidence for this, how much is uh, the skepticism that people or how much is the lack of uptake from these arguments a result of people not believing in like or, or not being aware of like the factors that Hannah just gave versus like a deep skepticism about climate change at all, right? Um, it seems like for a lot of people, these wouldn't be motivating reasons because they don't believe the climate change science at all, right? So these might be contributing factor, like the meat consumption is a contributing factor to climate change. But that, that of course, is only going to give you a motivating reason if you actually believe the climate science as far as what is actually happening as a result of CO2 emissions. So I wonder, like, as we as we like move to this alternative way of considering motivating reasons, will these are we thinking that these will actually help to address this underlying skepticism? Um, and if so, how? Um, I mean, it depends. <laughs> when you say will address, so that is if it were taken up, would that yeah. uh, help? Or is it, you know, <laughs> is it likely to be taken up at all? To which the answer is likely no. no if so it's, it's taken up, yeah. I, I think, then it's quite interesting. Um, wh what's interesting is if you take it up, right, and you think that the environment is intrinsically valuable and it, the ecosystems ought to be preserved and ought to be as healthy as possible, then you don't you don't even need exactly you don't even yeah. need climate change. Yeah. So right, right. so it's not even yeah, about you're, you're you're sort right. of yeah you're not worried about long term consequences down the road necessarily. There are really immediate uh, things that damage the environment that you would be opposed to and and would be and and this is the right motivation is a good term because ultimately it seems to be about that and the other thing i would say is <clears throat> even for people who accept all of the scientific arguments like us i don't think i'm sufficiently motivated and i think if i were to adopt this other way of thinking i probably would be more mot motivated if I can speak to Michael's question directly, um, I, th I heard a statistic recently. Um, Here she goes again with the stats. <laughs> Sorry. That's why I, I um, wanted to know them. So Actual evidence. <laughs> well, so I think, okay, and I, I'm, I'm going to, hmm, I, I can't remember the source for this. So, you know, take it with appropriate, uh, I don't know, grains of salt or, you know, the duty to go and fucking fact check afterwards. Um but uh, I think it's like 30% of the world's population doesn't know about climate change at all. But that correlates with, so the, that same 30% also tend to be the populations who are most directly affected by it, which I think is an interesting part of this problem. Um, and, and that sort of makes sense, right? If you think about places in the world that are most affected by them and relative levels of development, education, right? The sort of, you know, we, <laughs> I went to public school, climate change was a topic all the way through, right? Like we talked about the greenhouse gases, da, da, da. Like that was a part of my formal mandatory education. Um, that's not true if you don't have formal mandatory education or if you do, but you don't learn about that topic. So, you know, there's lots of reasons for why people, the sort of, Michael, your question there is sort of a, it's an ignorance question. 
Um, but as the late Charles Mills, uh, you know, pointed out to us, there's two kinds of ignorance. You can be ignorant because you have false beliefs, which might be the best way to describe a lot of people who say live in America, know about climate change, but think it's a future problem or think the warming because they're stupid Fahrenheit units, right? Make them think it's not a very good, you know, a very serious increase if they mistakenly take Celsius to be Fahrenheit. Um, right. So that's like false belief. That's ignorance from false beliefs, bad inferences, bad information. You can also just lack belief, right? You may just not know about it at all. Um, and that's a totally different epistemic situation with respect to the problem. The motivation question, right, is different depending on which of those camps that you fall into. So I guess for... Uh, insofar as our audience is presumably people who have smartphones and the internet, uh, you know about it. (laughs) So we're more talking, we're more interested in what kind of false belief type ignorance leads to not taking it seriously. And a lot of the discussion about it as being these future problems or consequences for other countries just makes people disassociate from it, right? We have this idea of moral distance and usually we talk about it in the context of like soldiers using drone warfare. It's much easier to pull the trigger when you're not standing in front of someone than it is if you're in fact standing in front of them and literally being confronted by their humanity. So I think the sort of the long term, the other side of the world problem, the not affecting me now problem, these are ways that we have ignorance in the false belief sense. We don't take it sufficiently seriously. And we just are bad, just as reasoners at evaluating risks when they take place in the future. And I'll stop there, but like I could cite, you know, the psychology psychology studies on this, right? (laughs) Everyone knows this, right? Right. Anyone who's an adult is like, yeah, that's true of me. Yeah, (laughs) I can promise you that I'll run 10Ks three months from now. I'm not promising you I'll do it tomorrow. (laughs) But sure, I'll have that obligation. I I don't know why you would make that promise to us. (laughs) Well, just just use an example, right? Like you would, you're you're not going to make a promise to do something distasteful right now, but you'll be more likely to make exactly the same promise if it's in the future, right? And that's just one of the ways in which we have researched that we're just bad at this, right? We don't take future risks as seriously. I think both of you answered that really nicely, right? So, uh, you know. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> right? So, like, on the, on the one hand, right, there are these um, sort of epistemic um, things that we know happen that prevent people from, you know, believing reasonable things based on the best evidence. And they clearly stand in the way of... Uh, there being meaningful uptake, right? Um, and then I think Toby, your response nicely answers why this could the the kind of view that we're considering is especially helpful, right? Because in some sense, it short circuits that problem. It it would not matter if you actually believed in climate change or anything else. This would provide you if you adopted the Leopold position, then you would have adequate motivation to do the right thing, regardless of what your scientific theoretical views are okay so so let's introduce this is uh aldo leopold's land ethic uh hannah he wrote mostly in the he's an american writer naturalist philosopher mostly in the early to mid 20th century yes but let me get you the 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 precise dates if you would like it's okay (laughs) we can just you know link to something on the site this is a ballpark right 
Um, yeah, so let's talk about his view. Um, and again, like, I, I, an interesting question for me is, like, how many ethicists even know of this? I mean, so people who do environmental ethics in particular will have encountered it. But if you haven't, I don't know. It's pretty, it's pretty niche. You don't hear discussion of this very often. But anyways, so he summarizes, he gives a kind of ethical principle, which is this. I, I, and, and this is like, this is like part of it. But so this, this first part, this is what he says. A thing is right. So, you know, some action, or whatever. A thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. And by that, he doesn't just mean life. He means everything that is a part of the ecosystem. So again, this will include soils. This will include um, the air, the water, all the plants, the fungi, the bugs, the animals, the people. Uh, it is wrong when it tends otherwise. So we have a moral principle which takes the the central good to be health of an ecosystem, where health of an ecosystem is understood uh, in terms of how well it can regenerate itself. Um, and we definitely want to talk about that. But in some ways, I think this is just kind of part of it. This is like a – well, let me put it this way. The, the other part of his view is just a reconceiving of – your role in the universe and in nature. <laughs> so it's not merely this ethical principle which governs action, but it's also the idea that you should stop thinking of yourself as someone who is, you know, either someone who must tame nature, must conquer nature, but rather as a member of the ecological community, which to me that is perhaps the more powerful part of it. Um, and one more thing here. The reason why I think that part is so interesting is because I worry that the reason all these instrumental arguments, or one of the reasons they're not particularly motivating is because they're all negative, right? When people think about environmental stuff, they're like, oh, I shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't do this. I can't do this. But what about like coming up with positive things? Um, ha- you know, having a desire to do something positive for your ecosystem, it kind of encourages that, that shift in, in mindset which I don't know, I think might be more motivating if it were adopted. Okay, I said a lot. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. I, I mean, I have a few comments on the sort of the, the, the moral orientation question, which I think is how you set off, right? So when you say, you know, this is really radical, it, it's radical from a common sense perspective, but it's, you know, it's radical within moral theorizing because it flips things on its head. So most... Uh, you know, analytic moral philosophies start with this idea that if anything is valuable, it's humans. <laughs> and if anything's intrinsically valuable, it's 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 also humans. Um, and everything <laughs> I mean, even else... worse, just persons, where that might not be all the humans. <laughs> Don't, yeah, well, so I'm saying humans there to, to reference this, the, uh, to get at the species. I don't want to use the mm-hmm, concept mm-hmm. of persons. You go, listeners yeah. can go back <laughs> to the abortion episodes for some discussion on that, that tricky word. Um, but then, you know, so you start with this idea that, that humans are the, the moral locus, right? Humans are the, the thing that morality is about, the thing that morality pertains to, the thing that morality flows from, um, which is a really common idea. You know, humans <laughs> are the only thing capable of understanding and acting in accordance with moral rules. Thus, morality is only about them. Um, but what the land ethics says is, no, that's wrong. And not only are humans not at the center, 
individual things are not at the center, and it's not about benefiting individuals. The land ethic completely flips the approach. So instead of having, you know, sort of individuals that have moral standing and then other things are instrumentally valuable to them, you get the biotic community as the only intrinsically valuable thing, this community and its relations within it. And then the value of the individual members within the biotic community are instrumentally valuable for the integrity, stability and beauty of the biotic community as a whole. So most of our traditional moral theories, you think of utilitarianism or deontology, it's about individuals and individuals' actions. The land ethic says, no, that's completely wrong. Morality is about communities, the biotic community. That's the only thing that's intrinsically valuable. The humans within it are instrumentally valuable for the community. <laughs> so it's a really a fundamental shift in, in perspective, right? The Not only does the thing that possesses or rather manifests intrinsic value change, um, but morality ceases to be about individuals getting by and is really about the stability, integrity, and beauty of the community as a whole. Um, yeah. Yeah, this... Sorry, Michael, did you want to say something here? No, no, go ahead. Let's go ahead. In one of the readings that we did for this, this raises an interesting question as to whether uh, this ethic is meant to just be added on to existing morality or whether it is meant to replace much of it. So like, there's an interesting question of like, how compatible is it with, I don't know, uh, assumptions about the value of individuals. Um, in one of the readings, it was it suggested a kind of more moderate position, but I don't know. It's unclear, but you're right. Yeah. That's a really important part of it is that it does focus on a, a very large and, and complicated kind of community, at least as a source of moral value um, beyond the individuals. Yeah, I thought I'd make a little connection here just to um, conservation approaches, just because I think it's in the, the vicinity. And if people have heard of Leopold, they've probably heard of Leopold in context with John Muir, um, being a really famous American naturalist, right? He sat at, you know, not too far from where Toby and I are now, right, in Yosemite, um, in his cabin, and, and really was responsible for driving this view of conservation common to North America, which is known as the fortress model, um, where the fortresses are little pieces of wild, untouched human natural, you know, environments. And the thought is we put walls around those and we protect them, we don't let people in. So you have this fortress model of conservation, and that sort of tracks from John Muir. Whereas Leopold's land ethic is a little bit closer to the uh, conservation paradigms that have been dominant in Europe, which are more about sustainable use. Now, they're not equivalent, so it's not that sustainable use paradigms of conservation in Europe are predicated on Leopold's land ethic, but it's more similar in that, right? He doesn't want to say there is this nature thing, this wilderness thing that's separate from us and we need to preserve it. He wants to say, no, we have to we have to live in it and with it <laughs> and by its rules rather than maintaining this weird Rubicon between the humans and the wild. Um, so, you know, he his his alternative would have us radically, radically alter our lives so that we 
I don't know. I, I I keep almost saying things like fit in with, but that already isolates us off from the nature. It's more. It's meant to be just more strictly true, right? That we we exist like the squirrels, and we need to stop, <laughs> <laughs> you know, getting ourselves away from that fact. Um, yeah. All right, Michael needs to let something out. Yeah, it's a big sign. <laughs> no, there's too, there are actually there are too many things. Huh. Okay, so all right. There's one thing we need to do still, which is just like explain. So, so why don't we just stop and explain? Like, well, we said this is a kind of radical idea. It differs from our our standard kind of moral theories. Why don't we just explain that simple point really quickly? Like, so one one should keep in mind that like Peter Singer, you know, has argued in recent decades that he's argued in favor of animal rights. Right, this is one of the things that he's famous for. He accuses people of being speciesist, which is a, similar to being a racist but instead of drawing the line uh an arbitrary line between races you're drawing an arbitrary line between species and for a utilitarian like peter singer that line is arbitrary because ultimately sentience is the thing that matters being sentient means that you can experience pleasure and you can suffer and for the utilitarian those are the things that matter morally speaking as far as i know (laughs) most people take that to be a radical position Mm -hmm. Okay, and so here's Leopold being like, yeah, also the dirt. So, I, you know, I pick up a handful of dirt and I'm like, you're telling me this? <laughs> if anything doesn't have, one might say, you know, moral standing, <laughs> it is this clump of dirt. So what the heck are you talking about, right? It's like, Can we um, slow down even more? Sure. Yeah, So, so it would be common, most people have what we would call so i'm just going to use centrism language just to give three positions and we'll contrast them so you can be an anthropocentrist which is like the speciesist view uh, where the center for the centrism we're talking about is like the center of the moral universe just to use a metaphor here because it's quick and convenient so anthropocentrism puts humans at the center they're the intrinsically valuable thing everything else is instrumentally valuable for them that's how most people tend to think about it you ask them about meat eating Oh, but, you know, if we're not meant to eat bacon, why does it taste so good? Right. (laughs) Right. All that kind of nonsense. So you can have sort of an anthropocentric view of moral understanding and thus the moral community. Humans are at the center. Everything else is contingent on them. Singer falls into the the sentiocentrist category. Um, But broadly, the difference there is instead of saying species is the thing that matters, we pick some other property that we think is the thing that confers moral standing. So for Singer, sentience is the property that makes you have moral standing. So he thinks, for instance... Which is to say that you matter, right? It's 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 you not okay be... for someone to do anything that they want to you because I can suffer, because I can feel pleasure, and that's ultimately the thing that matters, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're owed respect and moral consideration at a minimum, right? Um, so Singer doesn't think some kinds of shellfish have sentience and he eats them because they don't have the relevant moral standing. Similarly, plants, not sentient, so they don't count for him. What the land ethic one is often called either a biocentrism or an ecocentrism, and here we would just be a little bit precious about the terms because this is just expository. It's not <laughs> sort of completely accurate. So instead of having... So, you know, the first thing we had humans at the center, the individual center, right? Sentiocentrism tells you look for locuses of sentience. Those things have moral standing. Those things matter. And ecocentrism says don't look or ecocentrism says don't look for either of those things. Stop looking at individuals. Look at the whole community. So it's a a biotic community centrism rather than a special property making 
thing or a species making thing um where species making and property making uh two of the like first and dominant kinds of approaches to thinking about moral standing that you would encounter right in most uh, bioethics classes but yeah it's it's really interesting right we never we always ask this question how do other things get into our moral game rather than thinking oh we're ignoring the game that we're actually in <laughs> which is the the important shift in orientation for the land ethic um i think i think it's part of part of what the the view asks you to do right is to reconsider you know your your place with respect to other stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was just watching michael make I know, frustrated like, frowny dude, thinking faces like <laughs> I, I'm honestly, I, I I started this uh, conversation so far behind. I'm just, you know, trying to wrap my mind around just how radical uh, a lot of this is. And there's so many different like ways that this constitutes a massive shift in how one would think about it. That then trying to think, I mean, the, the basic question I, I keep coming back to as you guys are talking is, okay, and... What does a life oriented around this new set of values uh, actually look like? How's that going to work? Um, and it's actually, it's very hard to even engage that thought experiment in part because it it's certainly not a model that is like, that we are intimately familiar with. I was about to say that, you know, hasn't necessarily been instantiated, but I'm not sure that's true or not. I mean, one, one of the challenges here as we're talking about this is like a radical shift. Is that certainly true when you're talking about like Western centric moral theory and values? Um, but I immediately, as Hannah was explaining this sort of the way in which the ecological system itself is, is the moral center. It does seem to me that there are some non-Western cultures that at the very least their origin stories um, and the way that they're sort of the, the religion is built up around the origin stories for various religions um, take a position that's not actually that far off from this. So maybe it's not, you know, like I'm, I'm wrestling with how radical, you know, and difficult to imagine a, a, a society that is organized around these principles, how radical is that really? Or how much is it radical only insofar as it's kind of a departure from the Western-centric experiences that we've had? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely one of the things I wanted to talk about. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it more later. But I mean, just on, on a really surface level, I think most people read this or, or you know, read Leopold or something. And I would think for most Americans... I don't, I don't know how true this is, but it seems largely true. They're going to say, oh, yeah, this sounds like the indigenous cultures of North America, right? Native American kind of culture. And even in contemporary political disputes and de debates between Native American tribes and various corporations in the U.S. government, um, they will sort of explicitly invoke... Um, you know, this idea that, no, these ecosystems matter for themselves. I mean, it's a common kind of thing um, for what we consider indigenous cultures, I think. Now, no, you're asking, what does a society which, like, perfectly embodies these ideals, what would that look like? 
I, and, and yeah, has, well, that, has that been done? I don't know. Well, yeah, I, mean, I, would, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> I, didn't, I certainly didn't mean to be to say perfectly embodied because yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, sure. I, uh, um, it, it, right. It sounds quite. It's so far from our world, the the modern world, that it uh, is pretty dizzying. You're like, okay, we got to stop everything. But I mean, maybe later, one of the things we can ask, and one of the things I want to talk about is like. If you adopt this kind of view, I don't know, maybe what are some small things that you would do? What, you know, what would be some things we could do? So, so one other interesting thing about this um, uh, Leopold's land ethic and this kind of thinking, uh, in some ways it. So it's in so, in some ways it's a much stricter environmentalism, obviously, but in some ways it's less strict than, say, Singer's position, because, for instance. Um, although we've heard, actually, I, I heard Singer talk about this in person, and maybe it's less clear what he thinks. But something like sustainable and responsible hunting, on Leopold's view, is going to be perfectly fine. In fact, it would probably be better than mass monoculture soy planting, for instance, to satisfy protein needs. Um, why? Because in general, monoculture planting of any sort is not particularly good for any environment, right? D- diversity is one of the absolutely core goods of an ecosystem um, that lend it stability. So, and, and this is to, to Hannah's point earlier, that it does kind of move away from thinking about the individual solely. Um, it also deals with this kind of annoying puzzle in most kind of... Uh, you know, environment-friendly kind of discussions. There, for for people who are, let's say, vegetarians or vegans, there is kind of there's a way where you can frame predation by like lions or coyotes um, as a kind of a problem because you're like, well, they're you know they're killing innocent beings. You know, would it be better if, for instance, we could? grow our protein in a lab, feed it to the lions and the coyotes so they so they would stop eating the gazelles because the gazelles, you know, <laughs> suffer and experience pain. And, and like, you want to be like, that's nuts, right? This, the Leopold's land ethic does let you say that's nuts because you're like, well, that that's, yeah. <laughs> it's always one of the weird arguments that you encounter against vegetarianism is like, oh, well, why aren't you out there <laughs> saving the... <laughs> Saving the raccoons from the bobcats or something. It's like, ah, oh, it's just not really my business. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, the way in which, you know, you really want to give that kind of response. Well, I've always felt like I wanted to give that response as someone who's been both a vegetarian, a pescatarian, a vegan, all of these things at different um, phases. And it you can't give that response on like the singer sort of account, right? You can't say it's not my business it requires a more substantive explanation. Why do you not have to care about those causes of pain? But for the land ethic view, it does make sense to say, not really my business. Um, because the idea that, well, this this vision of humans as the caretakers and the stewards and the moral agents amongst a world of things that require our attention, 
Speaking of things the that animals require that do require attention. attention. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a misunderstanding of our role. It's almost self-aggrandizing, right, to sort of see humans. It's like a very similar to sort of great chain of being way of understanding the world where humans are at the top as God's last creation or something and everything else exists for our use or our purposes. And so we're there, we're at the center, we're the best, we must have control. Whereas the land ethic view is like, nah, like read a bit more ecology, maybe some, some Darwin or something well, so, <laughs> and yeah. understand that, right? Understand that you're an evolved being like the rest of them. Um, you know, so it's kind of a, yeah, it's weird. It's, it's hard to think about, I think, a little bit just because of how much myth-making we're used to um, and that we've already bought into this sort of this sort of idea of humans as distinct and interesting and the only ethical thing in the world is really strong, right? Um, but if we sort of unpack what that view entails or, like, what assumptions it rests on, it's kind of bizarre. Like, why should we think that about ourselves? <laughs> um so these these last remarks actually now make me very much question my claim that there are any like world religions that actually really embody this kind of value system because a lot of the origin stories that I have in mind are are ones that kind of embrace a sort of stewardship model right or mm. relationship with the ecosystem um where there is a like heightened respect for nature but it is certainly not one, you know, that the, or a lot of times the story is one of human beings were created by earth and therefore have owe earth something. And the proper relationship then is one of, of, of good stewardship, right? Where one has a kind of heightened you know, more important, an explicit um, and heightened role in the ecosystem. Right. And, Part of like a lot of times what makes what's supposed to make humanity special is its capacity to perform these kinds of stewardship duties. Um, but that's if we go this other route that you were just describing where, you know, it's not really my business. I don't humanity doesn't have this centralized special role to play. Then there's a sense in which even those sort of conceptions of human purpose don't exactly fit with this so maybe it actually hasn't been embodied so okay no so but i think (laughs) i think it depends a little bit how you think about stewardship there's stewardship as paternalism yeah i am the rational i am the understander i am the one who knows best for you and then there's a kind of stewardship that could come from a place of friendship a reciprocal mutual recognition kind of thing to the extent that right the the other things can recognize and appreciate us so i've been thinking about uh robin kimmerer who's an ecologist and native american author and she writes these really interesting books that are you know from her expertise as an ecologist putting it in conversation with native american mythology um and there is the the model in uh, the chapter of her book uh braiding sweet grass called the gift of strawberries where the gift metaphor is really strong here, right? Yeah. And so she gives a, a, a story about, um, gosh, I'm just trying to think. I think it's the Sky Mother. Um, so it's an origin story, but the strawberries are sprinkled right as sort of as a gift between friends, <laughs> not a gift from some 
you know, natural wild thing to the human thing, but a gift between friends. So it's mutual, symbiotic. So I think it depends how you understand stewardship. But an example I wanted to put in there, which is not sort of thinking about these sort of strictly indigenous culture models, where I do think we're typically thinking about first persons of some nation or other, is Ethiopia. Um, And in Ethiopia, they have for centuries... um, Apologies for my attempt to pronounce the name if I if I get it wrong. So the religion is the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church, and there's serious uh, you know agricultural expansion in Ethiopia. Something like ninety percent of their lands have been converted for agriculture, which means that they're kind of like Central Valley California looking lands. But the churches, which have existed for centuries at this point, are little oases. They're old growth forests. And so the job of the church leaders who run these church forests is to keep them going as a model of sustainable uh, relationship with the environment. So I do think that example, that Ethiopian example, might be more like the kind of thing that you're thinking of with this kind of um, uh, uh, stewardship model that's not paternalistic. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, good. I I think that's really important. And we're kind of getting to like fine-grained distinctions really about like one's particular psychological attitude towards the environment like that, that's at the level at which you have to talk about this stuff and so so you know when hannah said like that's none of my business talking about the lion and the gazelle that would be a case of great hubris right thinking that i must intervene in this kind of case um to prevent this really quite standard and ecologically important function of predators um all right so hannah when you initially set it up you were like you know, stewardship in this kind of paternalistic way is a, mm-hmm. is a bad kind of metaphor. But like the standard one is domination and conqueror. Right? Right. That's that's where we're at. <laughs> right. So like if, even if we had paternalistic stewardship, yeah, that would be a major improvement. Well, right. So well, this is the other thing I was think. I, I I've continued to think about these in terms of different like religious models, right? And there's a whole spectrum of different kind of religious models that are available that are all departures from the domination kind of status quo. Right. And they all might, in terms of the central concern of motivating people to be more concerned with the natural environment and actually doing things about climate change on the basis of that, like any movement in that direction could be a, you know, a really helpful one. It doesn't have to be this like there doesn't need to be an argument for the this most extreme sort of relationship that's completely non-paternalistic. Um, so I'm thinking of like, like. Jainist philosophy seems like it's kind of an interesting intermediary position because it, if anything, seems more like it's in line with the the kind of singer position that, or, or actually it's in the intermediate position between the singer position and the other position Hannah um, suggested, right? Which is more like it extends beyond just sentient beings, right? And the idea is that all, you know, living entities have souls and therefore have moral standing, but they don't have, um, you know, it doesn't extend to rocks and sand and things like that, or the ecosystem uh, itself. And it's not centering the ecosystem and the the relations between those things. Um, But any movement in any of those directions would certainly be like a radical departure. So like the Leopold position is like radical in that spectrum of all the different positions. But all of these are like, any of these really are a radical departure from the starting point. Can I, so I just had one thought when I was rereading some stuff this morning, because I was thinking about the traditional theories. 
and thinking about how how um so often you know in philosophy we have this concern about non-ideal theorizing which is at a really abstract level just the concern that you come up with like moral or epistemic ideals but they don't take into account some relevant facts that ought to constrain the ideals so you might think right the neglect of race and gender right when we're thinking about explaining a concept like knowledge right causes us to leave out really important things but on the other side we have this sort of like psychological non-idealism so you might think like you know oh well that can't be a good epistemic principle because human brains are just really bad at (laughs) evaluate you know decision making about you know risk or something um and i was thinking about the sort of like a the the need for not like so like epistemology maybe needs to pay more attention to psychology and maybe ethics needs to pay more attention to psychology as well. So we answer some of these like motivation questions, but sometimes it's other kinds of facts. And so when I was sort of thinking about the environmental stuff this morning, I was like, well, is it, you know, it took a while for us to actually understand ecology. Like when people started monocropping and, and doing timber, for, t- timber foresting in like the 1600s, they didn't understand what they were doing when they made this shift to monoculture, right? They didn't have those facts. So let me just put it this way, right? So, <laughs> and the thought is, what if we had a more realistic ecological picture when we were coming up with something like utilitarianism? If, if ethics as a project requires us to promote flourishing even human flourishing. <laughs> but, you know, if we think flourishing in a more general sense, not merely that of humans, but all the elements of the ecosystem, then we shouldn't be, like, so concerned about the fact that, or, like, it shouldn't be surprising to us that ethics entails we have to care about soil. If the project is promoting flourishing, <laughs> you don't get food on the table without healthy soil. So, so like, so it's I, almost, I, you know, <laughs> it, it, when you, if you think even narrowly about human flourishing... The fact that we've had such a bad understanding of ecology, and maybe and we shouldn't have, perhaps, because there were indigenous cultures or other cultures that existed that had a better, more sustainable relationship, and we ignored and dominated and colonization, right? So there's sort of that piece. But, like, if the project is flourishing, of course you have to pay attention to the soil. Like, it just seems obvious, right? You don't get good nutrition out of shit soil. <laughs> well, yeah, but so this is the thing, like, this, this is the confusing thing. Right. What you've given is a utilitarian argument right. for why you should. Well, so here's what's weird. Right. There's, there's a couple ways you could put this. Is there a utilitarian argument to be, you know, deeply concerned about the environment? Of course, those are the most standard ones. Climate change, you know, as a utility utility disaster. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, another way you could put it is there are utilitarian reasons to adopt Leopold's land ethic because of facts about what motivates you. Weirdly. It might be that if you think in cost-benefit utilitarian concerns all the time, it might just be worse at motivating you to do good kinds of things. The most extreme form of this argument is utilitarianism self-undermining because you realize uh, after you do your cost-benefit analysis that you will increase utility much more if you stop thinking in terms of utility. And so you, you should, for utilitarian reasons, stop being utilitarian. But anyways... Isn't that, I, isn't things, that called self-effacing utilitarianism? There's a name for that, view, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Which is that the yeah, elites, I mean, like, the elites should it, know it, but we shouldn't tell the public. <laughs> these questions about motivation <laughs> yeah. and the proper um, you know, emotional uh, and moral psychology, like this comes up a lot in care ethics, too. And I think it's super insightful and important. Um, one other thing I wanted to, to comment on that you said, Hannah, I really like this idea of friendship. Mm. And like, again, you know, we'll, we'll get we'll get to like. We'll address the, you know, because a lot of people are like, bro, 
Like, what do you, come on. What, my friends with the oak tree outside? Yes. Yes, you should be. That is the idea. But but the reason why I think that's important is, again, f- things like friendship and respect are motivating. Right. You genuinely want to do the good thing for that thing. It's not a sacrifice. Right. And that, I think, is an important psychological difference. It's not like, oh, I want to cut down this damn tree, but it's my friend, so I can't. No, you wouldn't even <laughs> think about it that way. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you go back to like the homelessness right case that many episodes ago we talked about, right? You wouldn't bat an eye if a friend needed to sleep on your couch for the night because they didn't have somewhere to be. But you take it to, you know, we take it to be super derogatory to extend the same care to a stranger. It wouldn't even be a question, right? In fact, you'd turn up on r forward slash AITA, Reddit, am I the asshole forum? Am I the asshole for refusing to let my friend sleep on my couch? Yes, of course you are, right? More more agreement than Reddit's ever seen. 90% yes. Unless he lied to you, in which case Reddit are all Kantian deontologists. So, you know, you're, you're I, I was screwed. Say, this makes me <laughs> think anyway. that yeah, Kant has just the most uninspiring moral psychology of all. <laughs> Right. For him, you must do the right thing strictly because it is the right thing. Right. Yeah. Okay, Michael. So I want to move on to the like, again, because like, we're just throwing things out there. We're just kind of describing this view. And, and most people should be like, that sounds nuts. And that's totally fair. And so we want to get to the justification of it. But do you have any anything you wanted to add? And before we get to that? I mean, so the only the the only thing that continues to like leap out at me as, as a concern as we're talking about this is we're talking about the idea that we can adopt a view, right? Or that we could come to, we can choose to hold these values. Um, and as though like we can be moved to, to sort of like change our minds. One of the reasons that I keep thinking about this in terms of religion is it very much seems to me like for most people, really this comes down to what was the value system that you were introduced to that, um, to use sort of like the technical definitions that a lot of religious historians do that gave you the core sort of values that help you orient yourself in the world and, you know, explain sort of the ultimate meaning of life and your experience. Right. And to me, it's like an obvious concern here. A question is to what degree do we get to choose any of these sort of value systems and how much is it really is the question of, there are these different ways that societies have built this sort of mythological infrastructure around the idea that we have certain relationships with the environment. We have certain purposes in, you know, the world to fulfill and those kind of dictate whether or not we see ourselves as having friendships with the environment or having a responsibility to the environment. Um, So, yeah, I mean, so I propose that we hold off on that. Um, and But that should be a lingering question in the listener's mind, because next we want to give like, are there reasons to think that it would be good to adopt this, right? That's in effect what we're saying. But then a, fo- a follow-up challenge is like, okay, yeah, maybe that would be nice, but can can we change our deep values that way? Can, can we change the way we think about ourselves? But next uh, question on that world. list, though, is do we need to, right? And just to 
maybe I'll just footnote it for later if we end up coming back to it. But there's a difference between believing and committing to something. And it can be sufficient to change your action that you commit to act on the basis of the truth of some claim. You do not have to believe it. The example I use in class when I talk about this is germ theory. Like if you give like a like an abstract level description of germ theory to someone, that's not true. There aren't tiny little creatures running around my body jabbing at things, being I've mean seen them and in the toothpaste commercials. Yeah, They're no, green guys and they like Yeah. <laughs> like that's they, absurd. They get in your gums. Like, do I believe germ theory? Not in any way, shape, or form that those kinds of videos that I watched in school taught me about it. Like, that's absurd. <laughs> but I'm committed to it. I wash my hands. I use hand sanitizer. I wear a mask, right? So, you know, I, I mean, and, and you could have better or worse examples of this, right? But you can commit to acting on the truth of something even if you don't yet believe it. So true, and that, that yeah. seems better than nothing, but that there does seem to be an extra challenge here because we're talking about motivating action and that again like unless you truly internalize it doesn't seem like it will be as motivating and so might suffer some of the same it's possible though instrumental arguments yeah that seems right but it i mean look it's possible that you don't need to go belief to commitment to action maybe you need commitment to get your foot in the door to get the belief and then it will become intrinsically motivating but yeah. maybe you we'll, need we'll to commit. We'll get there. We'll first, get there. This, is, right? this is the question. <laughs> it's a psychological yeah, question. So, can we do so it? To, be, can we do it? to be clear, too, the, the yeah. other thing is I wasn't thinking of this. I wasn't thinking of it. I, I did set it up as like a choose to believe. But in another way of framing the concern is that it's a question of whether or not this is something where we ought to give individuals reasons as opposed to kind of fostering sort of institutional commitments to value systems, right? And that, and that would be why it's sort of religion religious values end up kind of being of central importance is because they're kind of the primary vehicle for that kind of great so let's now give people reasons okay (laughs) (laughs) because here's the thing like i i do think it's useful to give reasons because i think this is something yeah like in terms of like large-scale social change yeah probably those institutions are a good way to go start in the schools and and the churches and all this stuff but I think one can also do it at the individual level. But again, we'll get there. Questions about changing the values. I think we can come after. So let's now get to this this problem. Hannah and I at least have outed ourselves as nature-loving hippies. <laughs> and the standard reaction to that is, y'all are some weird na- nature-loving hippies, right? You're crazy. Why the hell should I think that? Um, okay, so so are there reasons for thinking? There are two ways to frame this. One way is to say well, why should I think that ecosystems have intrinsic value? Or even even that one's ambiguous. Um, is it true that ecosystems have intrinsic value? Put it that way. <laughs> um, so you're looking for some kind of epistemic reason for thinking that they do. And I think this is the wrong way to put it. Um, I think in general, you can't give non-circular arguments that something has intrinsic value. Let me try to explain. So... This isn't a special problem for Leopold or someone who adopts the land ethic. Consider utilitarianism. Utilitarianism says suffering's bad, pleasure's good. Okay. Now, for most people, we're like, yeah, that seems right. But what if we're like, yeah, but why? Why should I think that? Utilitarianism has literally nothing to say about that. It, it's a starting basic assumption that suffering is bad and pleasure is good. And probably what they would do is, if you were skeptical, they would say, okay, well, something like this. Imagine 
two worlds, which are identical as much as possible. But in one of them, there's way more suffering. Which one do you think it would be better to exist? And we'd be like, oh, yeah, probably the one with uh, less suffering. But that's not an argument. Like, that only works because we already agree that suffering is bad. So if I say, I don't know, neither. Why should I think suffering is bad? They got nothing. You either have to appeal to some other value, in which case then the value of, of suffering or the badness of suffering is instrumental for something else. Or you just have to give a circular argument. You, you got nothing. So this isn't, this isn't a failure of these theories. This is just literally a problem of values and logic. And we've, we've kind of mentioned this before, right? So you get really difficult situations when there's disagreement at the level of basic values because it's like you don't have enough common ground to make arguments. Okay, so... Yeah. Of So if you don't already think <laughs> that it, ecosystems have intrinsic value, it should sound crazy to you because you're thinking in terms of persons, you're thinking in terms of sentience, right? And like, of course, this rock, like if anything doesn't have intrinsic value, it's this rock, you might think. Okay. So I don't think any arguments can be given of that sort. But a more interesting question, I think, is do we have good reason to think that or at least treat ecosystems as having intrinsic value. And now you can give practical arguments for thinking that you ought to change how you think of ecosystems and how you think of yourself. Well, like, just to to tie back to something we were just saying, I mean, one reason you could say is the to not think ecosystems have intrinsic value is to be deluded about the facts of what humans are in relation to the world. Um, If you take the evolutionary story, it just falls out that we're one animal amongst the others. Uh, Nothing created us with some special purpose and created all the other animals for those ends, right? You don't get this teleological myth built in. Um, So your resistance to the idea that the environment could be intrinsically valuable is based on false assumptions, namely about, you know, what humans are, their role in the world, da-da-da-da. So there I think there's a fork. (laughs) You can just be sort of nihilistic about the idea that there's intrinsic value of any sort, right? Because the reason why you were deluded and thought that humans had intrinsic value was because of some sort of mythopoetic, right, buy-in that you have about teleological arguments for human existence or something of that sort, right? Maybe distantly, right, if one identifies an agnostic or an atheist, but, you know, sort of Western worldviews, right, this is the lineage of those kinds of ideas. So nothing has intrinsic value. And the other way to go is to say, okay, well, nothing has intrinsic value to the extent that we are going to identify things with intrinsic value in the world. And this, I think, Toby gets to the sort of instrumental reasons to think that something has intrinsic value, um, is to go that way. Like... You know, so take the radical existentialist line. Finding, discovering, or or um, respecting intrinsic value is a choice. And you have to choose the things that you're going to take to be intrinsically valuable. You'll have to defend any choice you make to the extent that you can. <laughs> with practical yeah, Michael, Michael has reasons. questions about whether it's right. a choice, et cetera, et cetera. Right, and, right, and right. I think we'll but, get to but that. With but with practical reasons, not any other sort, right? There could be any other sort if we're assuming that 
circularity of this in this time in this place rather would be would always be viciously circular. So, um, one of the things you said in there is actually really close to Thomas Hill Jr.'s virtue-based argument. So maybe maybe we go there first, which isn't quite a practical argument. It is a moral reason for thinking that you ought to perhaps value ecosystems intrinsically. And and the thing that you said there was, uh, you know, not taking on that view reflects, I don't know if he would say, no, he probably would not just an inaccurate picture of yourself in the universe, but a vicious one, a one which is viceful, mm-hmm. a one which is filled with self-importance, which we recognize right. as a vice. Um, so, so what he says is, well, he gives his examples and he, he says, okay, you know, let's, let's, let's just ask for a person who disrespects the environment and say like destroys it for the sake of his example is like someone paves over their kind of like front lawn garden meadow thing because they don't want to deal with it and they just want sun so it's just they turn it to concrete <laughs> and and he just says you know regardless of whether we think this is right or wrong isn't that the sign of a isn't that a failing a character failing isn't that a failing of the person when don't we look at that and say I don't know. We could say a lot of things, but they're they're not particularly nice. And and this again, this is a virtue based approach. I don't love. I'm gonna be honest with you. These kinds of virtue arguments, but I but I think there is some interesting stuff in here. So what he ends up saying is that he thinks, <laughs> as a as a kind of matter of psychological necessity, or at least psychological probability, having an appropriate respect for nature and and your smallness in relation to it or at least your membership in it, is a kind of necessary component of having the virtue of humility. Uh, And someone who doesn't have that has a kind of self-importance, which we would regard to be vicious. Yeah, so the thought is not that um, uh, not caring about nature reflects you lack some virtue that you should have, but that not having the appropriate kind of respect for nature is symptomatic that you lack the the basis that the virtues come from, right? And so he thinks self-acceptance of our place in nature and uh, um, uh, a lack of self-centeredness are conditions for developing humility as a virtue and then having humility as a virtue. Um, so there are barriers to the virtue of humility and gratitude he says also gratitude he thinks yeah. the sort of appreciation of nature is really crucial to having the virtue of gratitude now if you're asking like well why is it bad to not have gratitude why is it blah 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 we're doing virtue theory here and those aren't and, and this is why i get a little frustrated with virtue theory because i do want those explanations but it's just like no we take it as basic that that's a bad uh, character trait to have or a good character trait so and yeah i wonder about that though in this, this kind of case particularly the like the gratitude uh the virtue of gratitude i mean that maybe the virtue theorist like a you know uh fully committed virtue theorist has to say that but i think there are lots of other views you know that can say look the virtues are still important even though i'm you know a utilitarian or whatever i can recognize the character traits contribute to 
happiness or whatever. Um, and like having the appropriate, like this appropriate attitude or understanding of one's position in the world is a prerequisite for having this virtue is also a prerequisite Mm -hmm. for being a well-adjusted person who can actually be happy. Right. And so (laughs) I think you can still kind of give answers beyond that if you're not like really deeply committed to just foundational virtue theory. Um, and psychologically, it seems rather plausible in this case, if you hold any of these other positions where like human, it, it comes, it, it ends up being a kind of practical argument for why you should care about the virtue. But, you know, you, you could certainly care about it because look, I, in order to be happy, I need to be well adjusted. And in order to be well adjusted, I need to have these virtues of humility and gratitude. And in order to have those, I need to have a more reasonable perspective about my relationship to other things. Um, yep. Yeah, and so he thinks that, like, uh, well, he says that um, a major obstacle for developing humility is lacking an appropriate sense of one's own self-importance. And so to have this kind of or, view or lack of, thereof, yeah. Well, no, <laughs> to think that one, that, yeah. yeah, to think that one, <laughs> oh, yeah, is sorry, incredibly yeah. important. Yeah, there was yeah. there were negatives in there. They just had to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, so he says, let me just quote him here because I, I think this is a pretty powerful way of putting it, and and it's quite compelling. And I think often when I come back to this paper, I'm sort of on the fence a little bit for a while, and then I read sentences like this, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, no, he's 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 got a point. I can see how this argument's meant to be quite persuasive. So he says. Um, The major obstacle to humility before persons is self-importance, a tendency to measure the significance of everything by its relation to oneself and those with whom one identifies. So, you know, he's pointing out, like, it's not that not taking the oak trees to be your friend is viceful. (laughs) It's that having this attitude that oak trees are only an exploitable resource for me is an incredibly self-centered and selfish way to live. Yeah, and that's I mean, incompatible like, with virtue, which is incompatible with the flourishing human life, right? Which is the you know the yeah. <laughs> I'll summarize one of the things I I have in my notes here, but like so one thing that I think a lot of people are familiar with, and like so when one goes to some sort of beautiful natural site, one of the common reactions there's a few common reactions. Awe, obviously, is one of them, um, but also yeah, a sense of insignificance in a way that is kind of profound, right? This has a profound effect on people. Oh, the things that I normally care about, and again, this is just like boilerplate, like nature talk, right? Um, the things that I typically care about and worry about don't effing matter, <laughs> right? It sort of uh, causes one to kind of zoom out and you realize your insignificance. And um, so so the, the crude way of putting this is, right, like nature helps you realize that you ain't shit, and Michael, I like that you use the phrase well-adjusted because I'm like, I think it's constitutive of being well-adjusted, perhaps being a sane adult that you recognize that you ain't shit. And if you don't recognize that you ain't shit, like I here, I'm just going to put my virtue foot down and be like, that's fucked. And I, I, I don't want to interact with you at all. It's like one of the most obnoxious traits a person can have right, is to be really self-important this way. And so, yeah, well, so it's really obnoxious from the third party perspective, but it's also harmful to the person or, you know, like the, the incapacity, like to the, there's a sense in which when you don't, when you, when you're this kind of personality you're describing, you can't experience gratitude, right? And that in itself means that you probably can't like actually have these experiences of, you know, 
stability and joy and all of, of the, those things, uh, if you're like that, right? And similarly with the lack of humility, um, you can't have that awe-inspired experience that you're describing. So it's bad both for everybody else, but also for you. Yeah, and I definitely want to get there. But there's an interesting thing here. I was thinking about this. Like, I, I'm not a theorist of emotions. I don't have a good grasp of whatever the going theories are. But at least anecdotally, um, these these feelings of awe or gratitude or insignificance, they're somehow, they're not just powerful in the moment. Because sometimes, like, when we're angry or frustrated, that's a powerful emotion in the moment. But after the fact, we're like, Whatever. These experiences, for some reason, have seem to have a more lasting impact on people. We take them like they we almost grant them a kind of epistemic significance of like, oh, of course, that's the right way to look at things, um, which I just think is interesting. I, I don't know. There's like almost a kind of like hierarchy um, involved here. I, I don't have much more to say than that, but it's it's interesting that those experiences, emotions are are particularly powerful and are tra- two- transcendental. Sure. Yeah, there are, there are two um, short passages about mice that I have in my mind. Um, one one is about uh, gets at this sort of the awe thing that you're describing. Um, the other one is just is just the Leopold one, which isn't quite relevant now. It's <laughs> um, so great, <laughs> but it's really good, and it, and it would be great if we could get it in, just because I think it's a really nice little case. And actually, it would be interesting. Oh, and I'm just setting myself homework assignments to compare and contrast these two paragraphs. So the the awe thing, so like often there's sort of two ways, right, that one often reacts to awe. One is the way that you described, which is a kind of a humbling experience of uh, realizing that one's tasks, you know, everyday activities and things are maybe not so important right um in the context of the grand scheme of things and some people react to that with humility which i think is the way that hill is arguing we or hill jr is arguing we ought to respond uh, that we should have this kind of more well calibrated self-acceptance and and things of that sort but for other people it really throws them into existential crisis <laughs> um right confronting that the insignificance right the sort of the evolutionary story is deeply destabilizing for some people um and so the mostly the mouse passage <laughs> that I, I have in mind here is, is from um, a piece by Thomas Nagel uh, on the absurd. And he's asking this question, you know, why are human lives absurd in a sense that we would grant that they are from this sort of moment of awe, realizing how short and how, how trivial our lives are. And he says, so he says, why is the life of a mouse not absurd? The orbit of the moon is not absurd either, but that involves no strivings or aims at all. A mouse however, has to work to stay alive. Yet he's not absurd because he lacks capacities for self-consciousness and self-transcendence that would enable him to see that he is only a mouse. If that did happen, his life would become absurd since self-awareness would make him cease to be a mouse and would not enable him to rise above his mousely strivings. (laughs) Bringing his newfound self-consciousness with him, he would have to return to his meager yet frantic life, full of doubts that he was unable to answer, but also full of purposes that he was unable to abandon. Mouse, mousely strivings is one of the great phrases. Oh, it's one of my favorite phrases. It's the yeah. best sentence in this uh, in this piece. But I think that's you know. So Hill's Hill Junior saying like, look, when we 
when we confront this absurdity of life, right, and we sort of have a proper appreciation for the fact that we're this tiny sliver incredibly late in the the development of the, you know, life on the earth, <laughs> right, the rock flying Which makes through the no vacuum sense, thing. by the way. Let, let's, let's not even address <laughs> the fact that existence literally makes no sense whatsoever, but... <laughs> but you, you have to then, you've got this, on the one hand, you can see nothing matters. And on the other hand, you can't give up the fact that it really matters to you. How do you react to that? And Hill's position is, well, we should, it's cause for humility. It's cause for understanding one's, you know, fleeting existence on the planet or something. And so the better way to live in recognition of that fact is with gratitude and humility and appreciation, not self-importance, self-centeredness right moral center of the universe thing so i think it it, it it the land ethic view does require us to react to what is called by some the absurdity of life with that kind of attitude with that kind of gratitude humility perspective and if i'm nietzsche <laughs> michael's nodding his head emphatically <laughs> i say what the fuck are you talking about no it's absurd it's meaningless it's nothingness i can do what the fuck i want I can pick selfishness. It's no more choice worthy than this humility, self-acceptance approach. So I think that's, that's, that gets us back right to this, this original question here about like, should you accept the land ethic perspective? And is it at some level just an aesthetic choice, which I think Nietzsche would say it is an aesthetic choice and you're brainwashed into thinking the right choices to go the humble humility, good, you know, good feely kind of way. But that's as choice-worthy as going my nihilistic, the only important choice is whether or not to, you know, uh, kill yourself kind of way. Um, I was literally just thinking the entire time Hannah was talking up until she brought up Nietzsche. I was just thinking about the existentialist. Well, I was thinking existentialist literature in general. And I, yeah, I was also thinking um, to, this whole conversation really has just been like the romantic period, you know, period in literature and the like yeah. focus on awe as like the uh inspiration for a lot of the romanticist period and then yeah that existentialism is a natural so many landscape paintings yeah <laughs> well then the existentialism there's a reason that you know philosophically existentialism is often seen as like the inheritor of like the next iteration of uh transcendental thinking and then yeah uh then you, you said the Nietzsche bit. So that's where I... Well, I mean, I, I, I pre-delivered you to think about it earlier when I said... I mean, the whole way I expressed the, the making a choice thing earlier was Satrian. Yep. <laughs> right. Yep. I, was, I was invoking existentialism as a humanism there when I was explaining that by saying, like, look, if it's, if it's fundamentally a choice, then, well, which way are you going to go? And for Sartre, right, the choice that you make is your... or constitutes an expression to everybody else that you think this is a candidate flourishing life that's valuable. So whichever way you react to absurdism constitutes your, like your, your, I don't know. It's like an assertion to everybody else <laughs> that you should, that this is one of the reasonable alternatives or one of the reasonable options rather. Um, so you better hope it's defensible. It's been a while since I've read the existentialism as a humanism essay. Um, but yeah radical freedom stuff is pretty important there yeah and then i'm just left thinking like all right and really i'm back to the religion stuff like it these are all different ways of attempting to 
existentialists could say, hey, you get to choose how you like you get to choose ultimate values and how you orient yourself in the world. And then you you look at the world religions as lots of a variety of templates for ways of trying to answer those questions. Uh, and then I'm with Nietzsche where I'm like, yeah, there's no I'm, you, you can't give any non-circular arguments for any particular one. Um, but I, but they're at the, at the best you can do is like, uh, yeah, but which ones actually psychologically can you live with? Right. Right. Yeah. And that's where, um, there's sort of, there's a forward looking orientation that I think is neglected too much. Um, like I don't, I, I just, I, I'm increasingly running out of patience for people who don't understand that things like climate change and appropriate solutions to climate change are multi-generational problems. This question about, well, you can't convince, you know, Jim the butcher who's 45 years old to suddenly radically, you know, ha- adopt a different perspective on the way the world is. Yeah, maybe not. But it, it, well, then he's not the target here. It's the next generation and it's an education problem and it's a multi-generational problem. Maybe you can't help the boomers, right? Maybe they can't be reoriented in the land ethic way. That's fine. Maybe that's what psychology has told us. Does that mean we should abandon the land ethic? Probably not. Maybe it just means, you know, we we now understand that some form of irrational value acquisition process happens early in life. Which one do you want people to get? Nobody's getting it with the philosopher's dream of rationally persuasive accepting their original moral values. That's not happening for anyone. So how are we going to set things up for the next generations to get the values that we think are even only most practically useful? (laughs) Right. For the survival of the freaking species. I mean, it doesn't even matter which way you want to go with. But it's yeah, I, I don't see why the failure to convert the boomers is a death knell on any <laughs> any theory. All it shows is, yeah, and if you want people if you want people to have the right view, you gotta get in earlier. Okay, so we're gonna stop the conversation right there for now, and we will pick it right back up uh hopefully next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can help it grow by subscribing and by giving it a good rating or a review. And don't forget to check out our website, badlandsphilosophy.com, where you can find a list of citations for every episode and access written content that we post there regularly. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through our website, and you can also find us on Twitter at at the Badlands Pod. Thanks again for listening.